verses 18 through 20, he said, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and he says, and for me. And I would imagine when he said all the saints, he's thinking, and and this is kind of a personal plea in the midst of it. And and don't forget to, to pray for me. And he understood that the work was great, and I don't think that frightened him so much. This is the section of prayer that's taken out of the spiritual warfare, and he understood what the devil was able to do, and I don't think that concerned him in the Lord all so much. He understood that the Jews wanted to kill him, and the Romans eventually, I don't know if he understood that they eventually would, but nonetheless, he understood that they were all enemies to the gospel. But I don't think that's that which overwhelmingly concerned him. But I think his biggest concern, which should be our biggest concern, is yourself. Is yourself. Our propensity to compromise. Our propensity to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so he says, may fill up with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. That utterance, and now he shifts gears directly to himself, that utterance may be given to me and that I may open my mouth boldly. You wouldn't think that that would be one of Paul's prayer requests. You know, to open my mouth boldly, but again, he's people just like ours. So, so the things that frighten you about opening your mouth, apparently they're the same things that Paul was frightened of. Boldness in the Lord, and maybe you don't always feel like you're bold. I don't feel like I'm bold enough. I don't think any of us really should. Paul didn't either. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador, a representative in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so again, taking the name of the Lord in vain is, well, it's one of the worst things that a Christian can do, is to call themselves a Christian and not act like a Christian, to place the name of Christ upon us but misrepresent Him in our words and in our actions. Unbelievers, well, they'll go so far as to search even the annuals of history to refute the Christian position. I mean, I've heard it, trying to minister. Yeah, well, what about the Crusades? The Crusades? That happened in the 1200s. That's your argument? You're going to stand before a holy God, and he's going to say, give an account for yourself, and you say, I didn't believe, because of the Crusades. You know, that, that, was, that was hundreds of years ago, or the Inquisition. And even to cast your unbelief upon some person, at least who claimed to be a Christian, and, and didn't live a biblical life. And so... I don't want to bring dishonor to the name of God. As God has placed his name upon me because he has made me a child of God through faith in Jesus, I want to rightly represent him. I don't want to be used as an example why somebody shouldn't be a Christian or why there is no God. I want people to look at my life and see Christ in me. And so, again, we've been studying this for quite a few weeks. Hezekiah. Hezekiah realized that it was important, especially for Israel, that his ambassadors would rightly represent the country. So in around 700 B.C., King Hezekiah got some of his scribes, he got them together, and they assembled a group of Solomon's wise sayings. We saw this in chapter 25, verse 1. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. And again, Hezekiah, he wanted to put together a manual that would direct his dignitaries. Just some sort of of guide so that they would know how to conduct themselves as they are representing the kingdom. 
what better place to go than to Proverbs. So wise instruction so that the king's representatives would represent him properly. And so we've been looking at chapters 25, now we're in 29, which is the end of this, these Proverbs that made up that manual. And we've been looking at it from the standpoint of preparing ourselves that as we go out into the foreign country outside of these walls, that we would rightly represent the king. Because again, as you call yourself a Christian, automatically people are looking at you to see how you conduct yourself. Okay, are they going to try and jam that down my throat? What do they do when it comes to alcohol? How about their language? Do they use bad language? You know, and they're, they're examining, maybe not all at once, but, but, but they're looking at our lives as we live our lives, how a Christian is supposed to live their lives. They may be looking at these things to bring an accusation against us, but nonetheless, we are being ex- examined. And since we are being examined, which is what we want, we got an awesome opportunity to rightly represent Christ, that we would be that peculiar people, the people different from those people who are in the world. So today's lesson, today's lesson in in, in chapter 29 is kind of an accumulation of all that we've been looking at since chapter 25. Some of the things are going to be loosely referred to again, a little bit different verbiage, but repetition is a key to teaching and that's what is going on here. That's why Hezekiah's guys, his scribes, picked out these proverbs to assemble together, inspired by God without a doubt put together under the direction of Hezekiah, who apparently was led by the Holy Spirit for that purpose. So the first thing we're going to see is instruction in private morality and public good. You want your people who are representing you to be moral people and to be good people out in society. Christians, well, that used to be an argument for the existence of God. You could say, look at these Christians. They're generally good citizens. They pay their taxes on time. They don't complain. They keep the laws of the land. Unfortunately, nowadays, it's not necessarily a good argument for the existence of God. I mean, the argument still holds water itself, but are those who call themselves Christians, are they able to hold up under scrutinization? And so we look at the landscape. We look at even Christian leadership, or at least that which is called Christian leadership today, And a lot of it, it just doesn't stand up, just doesn't hold water. Verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Harden his neck. The idea, he who is stiff-necked. Have you ever had a dog that was stiff-necked? I was driving down the street. I was coming to church one day. It was one day just during the week and... I go by the trailer park that is over there on Philadelphia. It's in between, I believe, Grove and Baker Street. And there's a lot of people who walk their dogs out there. What's that? Yes, Samoan. And um, there's a lot of people that walk their dogs. They're carrying their little baggies around with them in case the dog makes a mess and little shovels or whatever. And And this one lady was trying to take a shortcut. There was a fence or something, but she had to cut through the dirt. And for some reason, the dog didn't want to go. And it looked like something like a bulldog. It had some weight and girth to it. And the thing sat down, and I was kind of laughing as I drove by. And and she's trying to pull on this dog, and she's kind of dragging the dog's backside along the sidewalk. But the dog... The dog was being stiff-necked. The dog did not want to go. Don't laugh, because there's a spiritual lesson in this, and we're the stiff-necked ones. (laughs) 
And so what this dog was doing is he was digging in and he was resisting the leading of his master. And what you do for such a dog is, well, the best way I've found in, in the experience that I've had is you put a choke chain on this disobedient canine and after a few good yanks, he'll obey. He'll obey. This is why the choke chain is so necessary in some areas of our lives. And God will give it a few yanks every once in a while. And what are the yanks for? The yanks are for the stiffening or for the softening of a stiff neck. I had a Irish setter. I was a freshman and my parents wanted to move from La Mirada to Brea and they bribed me with a dog so that I would go because I didn't want to go. If you go, we'll get you that Irish setter you always wanted and I gave in. And so they got me the Irish setter. But one of the part of the deal was that I had to train him. And so I took him to dog school. And it was very interesting. This dog, who when I put him on the leash, he would flip out, and he would bite the leash, and it was kind of a crazy thing. At the end, well, what you do is you have a choke chain and the leash, and the dog would sit next to you, and you would always lead off with your left foot. And you would lead off with your left foot, and the dog would start, and then when you'd stop, the dog would stop, and the dog would automatically step down. Matter of fact, we even got it so that we could walk them off leash, that they knew when you put that choke chain on, it was time for business. And the same thing, it's just as if you had the leash and we would walk in figure eights, we would walk around circles of other dogs and this whole thing, and it was really an amazing experience. And the thing about it was, the dog was always sensitive to the leading of his master, because he knew in the back of his mind, even this dumb dog, that if I do not follow the leading of the master, repercussions are going to come upon me, and they're going to be instant and it didn't really hurt the dog, but in the dog's mind, there's going to be something that is severe. At least they'll know that the dog, or at least the dog knows, he's displeasing to his master. Leading the dog, well, leading the dog, we're kind of the same way. Because the dog, the dog's always going according to his senses. He's always got that nose in the air, just as we can always have our proverbial noses in the air. Always goes towards that which is pleasing to him, but not necessarily pleasing to the master. And so I was the only one in our family that the dog would really allow to be led in this manner, and I was his Lord. Now, if Jesus is your Lord, you'll be led. You may have a stiff neck, and some of us are probably still stiff-necked in certain areas of our lives, and the Lord is still softening up those necks. But nonetheless, we've learned. We've learned through maturity, through a lot of yanks upon the choke chain, that I've got to not harden my neck towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. I've got to learn to be led by God and go in God's direction to take my cues off His moving. When God goes, then I go. When God stops, I stop. When God turns, I turn. And I turn the same way as He turns. And and, and again, just to understand these things and understand the leading of my Lord that he may lead me into the place that I don't want to go, but nonetheless, he's going there with me. He's always by my side. Because that dog would always kind of rub up against my leg. Wouldn't always be looking at me, but he would always be rubbing up against my leg just to always know that I was there and he was doing right. And I want to be like that. I want to rub up against the leg of the Lord, if you will. If Jesus is your Lord, you will either not be stiff-necked or you will learn from the leash. But either way, you're going to learn. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. 
as you're disobedient to the Lord and the Lord's leading in your life, there's the potential for sudden destruction to come upon your life. And again, those who are disobedient even to the calling of the Lord, and they go to be without the Lord, then, well, that last part, that surely he will be destroyed and that without remedy. Unfortunate hearing about the passing of Robin Williams and my wife was in Oklahoma on the day that uh, it was announced and I typed in that Robin Williams had died and their first response is, I hope he knew the Lord. And it's, just, and it's true, I hope he knew the Lord. I read something today that some Christian that was in a, a drying out center, whatever you call them, rehabilitation center with him, said that he received Jesus Christ. I don't know how true that is, but I hope he knew the Lord. And so this person here is one who has hardened or calloused his neck and is not being led by the leech. He's an ambassador who is not representing the king, but he's more concerned, and that's kind of how stiff-necked people are, they're more concerned with their own interest, and he will suffer that sudden destruction. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, Israel has already been defeated by Babylon. And Babylon had inserted a king, and the king was to Zedekiah. He was to follow the instruction that was given to him by Babylon, and he was to pay tribute and to watch over and to keep the people. And in verse 11, it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And so what was he? He was stiff-necked, verse 13. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, who did God refer to Nebuchadnezzar as? My servant. And so God was using Nebuchadnezzar to go in and to exercise judgment against Judah. But here's Zedekiah. He's just like those before him. He's stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Again, it says right here, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And so what had happened to this man? Well, he stiffened his neck and he rebelled and he rebelled. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. This was going to be the third time that he had to go into Judah and to defeat Israel. He was sick and tired of it, so they go in there, they defeat Israel, they wipe out all of Zedekiah's lieutenants and all of his staff, if you will. Zedekiah went running out the back door, but he got chased down. As he got chased down, he was brought to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar tied him to a post and killed all of his sons before him as he was watching and then put his eyes out. And the, the idea here is, is the last thing you're going to see is the death of your children. And so you can imagine how hard that was. And so here he is in this very cruel and this, 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 this vile punishment. But you could tell him, hey, Zedekiah, he was often rebuked, and he'd been rebuked, and hardens his neck, will suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. And so Solomon here, now Solomon predated Zedekiah, so Zedekiah did have the word of God, but it comes to pass. And again, we can relate to that because we know when we've hardened our hearts and stiffened our necks against the Lord, these things come to pass. Verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. 
I'm not speaking against this verse, but I really believe that righteousness comes from, from, from the ground up. And what I mean is, it's when the people in the church within a society get a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord. In our particular society, we go into the voting booth and God's will is fulfilled and then we have a person who is the desire of God. But again, looking at it from the perspective of this verse, it obviously works because when that godly man is in that position, it means that the people have a heart for the Lord and that's a people that the Lord blesses. The blessings of God, this particular case, that work from the top on down on a national level. Think of every election as you approach the voting booth as if you are voting for blessings or cursings upon the land. Every election that when we enter into the voting booth, we're voting for either God bless America or we're voting for God curse America based upon the people that we put in office. Now, you look at the candidates and you just think, well, it's a curse no matter what I do. But that's why it's important. It's important to pray. Important to pray and to vote your heart that would be stirred by God. Not the promises that they make, because do any of them ever keep their promises? Remember George Bush, Bush Sr.? Read my lips. No new taxes. What did he do the second year? New taxes or higher taxes, whatever it was, I don't even recall. But again, even with their best intentions, they don't know what's going to go on in the future. So my wife, her family, World War II, her family was German. Hitler's in power. Hitler's in power, and the effect that it had upon her family is just amazing. My wife's grandmother, my wife's mother's mother, she dies in childbirth. Why? There's no doctors around. They're all been brought in and scripted into the service. She loses uncles and other relatives on Germany's eastern front. They lost their family estate. It was in eastern Germany, and they had to flee eastern Germany because of the Russians, and they, they lost that. As a nation, Hitler, Hitler, he held on to the bitter end. He held on until the German, I'm sorry, the uh, Russians were just about knocking at his door. And the thing about that is, he could have surrendered this lost cause so many months before, and it would have saved lives, because the Allies from both sides kept bombing and bombing and bombing, and it was up to Hitler at some point just to stop the madness, but he never did. And so there were these people, at some point they bought into the lie. There's Hitler, and then everything he's going to provide for me. He said that we're a, a superior race. We're going to be, if you will, rulers of the world. And, and this economy that we've been dealing with, we're not going to have to deal with anymore. Well, some elements of that were true at the very beginning, but it all came crashing down upon them. And the problem was, when they put him in office, allowed him to go to power, in actuality, they thought it was going to bring blessings, but in reality, it was a curse. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem. When he was troubled, all of Jerusalem was troubled. And so again, we've got great responsibility to truly be that light, to truly be that salt in this country. We've got awesome opportunity. Think about it. You are possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have God who will empower you. Do you tap into that power? Not how you see the guys doing on TV, but do you tap into that power and that, Lord, give me wisdom, give me understanding, give me insight. 
Lord, into this candidate, into how I raise my child and how I act at work, and all of these things, you've got God who will influence you to godliness if you just seek him out. How do I seek him out? Ask him. Simply ask. How do I ask? You ask in prayer. And that ever unpopular companion of prayer, fasting. Fasting. Depriving the flesh. We're not people who are very good at depriving the flesh, but depriving of a fasting and praying and seeking God out. I wonder, how much does the church truly fast and pray? I mean, honestly, just fast. I mean, I'm talking about not collectively, but individually. Because really, that's where the boots are on the ground, is the individual fasting and praying. For what? For anything. For God to move, for the church to, to become empowered, for the issues that are in your life, whatever it might be, to truly fast and pray and seek God out. As I look at the condition of the world, I don't think the church is doing a whole lot of fasting and praying. Verse 3. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. Here it's this whoever loves wisdom. Before it was when a son loves wisdom makes his father rejoice. Some translations insert the word man there. And the idea is, is a more mature man rather than a son. It was pointed out before when it was a son. But the idea is, is that this is the father's finished work, if you will. The, you know, this, this, this young man has been raised to adulthood and what kind of son is he going to be? And the issue is moral principles that relate to sexuality here. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. And, you know, Back then, you know, that was the pornography of the day. And so you can insert pornography, you can insert, you know, things all along that spectrum. And how heartbreaking it would be to a father to see their child completely caught up in those things. And the wealth that is wasted here would be the family heritage or the family fortune. All of this that has been put together for the purpose of the generations. You know, this is a family that has done well. It's all thrown away on fleshly living. And again, you can really insert so many other different things in there, but you get the idea here. Here's one who, who's got such great potential, and the Father has taught and trained him and has given him these things, and he's just completely wasted these things. The best biblical example is probably the one that most of you are thinking is that prodigal son. Dad, I wish that you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And the Father does so. And I, I think that was wise of the father to, to do so. Because what do you see in the son asking that? What you're seeing is, is an expression of the heart. I mean, he could have said, no, you're going to stay here and you're going to be a godly man whether you like it or not. But he's understanding, well, you know what? He's got that kind of heart about him. What am I going to do? I'm going to turn him over to the Lord. And so he gives him his fortune. He gives him his inheritance and he, he sends him off. And in Luke chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all, uh, all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. And when he had spent all, he arose, or there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He realized, uh-oh. And again, we know that this young man needed to get to that place. 
And it's almost that this, this father was a man who, who fasted and prayed for his son. And I would imagine when the son came to him, as most of us can easily do, he could have said, he could have just been defeated. I guess this is it. I guess this is gone. You know, here's, here's my son, and, and this is going to be the last. I'll never see him again. He's going and completely walking away from the Lord, and so on and so forth. But really what you're having is man's wisdom working in concert with God here. Man's wisdom, as he depends, the father, as he's dependent upon the Lord and the things of the Lord, working in concert with God because he gives him over his money and he allows him to go. He knew, he probably knew that the son was going to waste it all on prodigal or wasteful living. But then all of a sudden there arose, isn't that a coincidence? There arose a famine. And again, I have to believe that that's God working in concert with the wisdom of this man, working together for the purpose of this son. We know that the son ended up eating pig pods in the pig slot. Father didn't go bell him out, but the son came to himself. And this son needed to come to him. Because again, when he goes, in essence, that's what he was saying. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible just says that he asked for his inheritance. But the dad knew that he needs to get to the bottom. And as he did, God expedited it and got him to that place that he would be able to come to himself. So what you see here is a hard-hearted kid, or maybe you should say a stiff-necked kid, and now a kid who has been humbled in the pig slot. There's been a big change in his life so that the father would recognize that and come and run to his son. Why? Because he sees that his son has been changed and brought back to where he needs to be. I would imagine if you could ask that father, it was worth every penny that he gave that child. If you don't believe that, just ask any parent who's ever been frustrated with their child's living. I can relate to that as a father. The issue, again, is the dishonor of the one who is led by the flesh and that dishonor that he brings to his family. And we can wonder, how many times have I dishonored my father? And I don't mean my fleshly father, I mean my father in heaven. My father in heaven through fleshly living. Again, I am to properly represent God, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, not living by the flesh, but living by the Spirit. And we've only got ten more minutes, we're on verse four. I put these together and I'm thinking, I don't even know if there's a half hour in this, and they only go through three verses. Verse 4, the king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. God wants a just society. Again, go look in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. God demands justice from his rulers and from his people. Just living and decisions represent God throughout our lives very well. We best represent the justice of God when we properly care for those people who can do nothing for us. Where is justice truly seen? When you care for somebody who can do absolutely, when you do the right thing for somebody who can do absolutely nothing for you in return. A constant theme throughout the Bible is one who profits from the hardship and the trust of the people. It's a constant theme of the evilness of that person. We've seen it time and time in the book of Proverbs. Isaiah 61, verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. I will direct their word in truth. Verse 5, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. The idea is deceptive speech. Flatters his neighbor means to make smooth, to smooth over somebody. 
but you notice the end. The idea is he's doing it. He's setting the trap for this person. He's trying to manipulate that person, but it says sooner or later he's going to fall into the trap. Truth always comes to light. John chapter 8, verse 44, we're told that Satan is the father of all lies. Verse 6, By transgression an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. But there, on the other hand, there are those of us who are rejoicing. By transgression, an evil man is snared. Because of his willful sins, because Israel has rejected Jesus, there was a snare in that. But the righteous, the church, it sings and it rejoices. Verse 7, the righteous consider the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. It easily is explained when we remember that one of the fruits of the Spirit is kindness. And those who are the wicked will not be able to exhibit a fruit of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man in, in, uh, in Lazarus, in chapter 16, verses 19 through 21, it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, once again, verse 7, the righteous considers the cause of the poor. He wasn't. He was allowing this man the crumbs, or at least the man desired even his crumbs. But the wicked does not understand such knowledge. Now, if you look, I'm not telling you to look because I don't want you to turn there. We don't have time. But in Luke chapter 16, verse 24, then he cried out, this rich man, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And so notice that 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 gulf is blocking a two-way street. Now, you, I've always thought of it from the, from the standpoint of the rich man. He wanted to go to Lazarus, and he wanted to get the refreshment that Lazarus had. But it says it's also blocking them to come over to those who are being tormented. And so God's got to keep those people in paradise from coming over to the bad side of Hades, because what? They're going to have a heart. That type of person is going to have a heart for those people who are suffering. And so the gulf is necessary to work both ways, to cut off both avenues, to keep the people from sneaking in from the bad side to the good side. But it's also because they're going to have that heart of compassion and all. And I often wondered if they can even see what's going on. But again, it says here it's keeping them from going over, from going over and taking care of the torment that is there. Because again, those people are going to have a heart for the people who are suffering. But it's God's will. Seven verses on instruction in private morality and public good. Next is dishonorable passions, verses 7 and 8. 
The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. If a man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. And so this speaks, scoffers set a, flame, uh, set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. It just speaks of those people that have that tongue, tongue to scoff. And it just, you know, maybe it's a gossiper. Maybe it's somebody who is always bringing, you know, sounding the alarm or crying wolf, whatever it might be. You know, look at King David. King David took the policy of not touching God's anointed. Not touching God's anointed. To, to not set a, a, a city of flame. And he was a wise man and he turned away wrath because if he touches, you know, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, then the tribe of Benjamin would have begun against him and it would have caused division. And he understood, I'm going to let God deal with this situation. And so he just let God deal with it. And when God dealt with it, then eventually he was made king at all. One day an Amalekite came to him bragging about how he was the one who killed Saul. David was quick to execute him because, again, you don't get in God's way. We have scoffers in our Christian community who are always setting a city aflame or proclaiming disaster, attack, or apostasy a lot of times when there is none. When we hear of these things, we need to confirm them before they get out of control. And what I mean is, do you remember the Y2K? Do you remember all of the teachings that this was the end? That this was a disaster and people are saying, even in the Christian community, they're selling disaster kits. You know, the generator cells went through the roof and we were stocking water and all of these things. I remember when I first got saved, there was the Procter and Gamble thing. You know, again, a city set on fire, again, through scoffing. Uh, there was some story about the CEO of Procter and Gamble was really a Satanist who was saying blasphemies towards the Lord and all of this stuff, and none of it was true. They showed their logo and how it was some kind of sign of Satan, and none of it was true. Matter of fact, you could go on the Procter and Gamble site, I don't know if you can still do it, and there's a letter from Billy Graham that they have posted there saying that it's not true. Billy has put his blessings upon Procter and Gamble. I remember even recently, President Obama is trying to add more terms to his presidency. You know, that was the latest conspiracy. He can't do that. It's the Constitution. You know, you just can't, you just can't do that. And it's kind of funny. You know, there was that. Then I saw a, a thing today, and some, it was a right-wing right, right extremist uh, website that said, George Bush was right. ISIS has found all of the weapons that were hidden of mass destruction. I don't know if that's true or not. And then down at the bottom it says, who wants to elect George Bush for another term? Well, you can't. Matter of fact, you guys were just complaining about Obama going against the Constitution, and now you guys are doing it. And again, there are people who are scoffing and they're setting cities on fire. What does the Bible say? Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Do not say a conspiracy. And we're always yelling, conspiracy, conspiracy. We've got to find out the truthfulness of these things. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy. Do not be afraid of their threats nor troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. Depend upon the Lord. Y2K, what did Chuck say? I'm just going to depend upon God. I, this is my Chuck imitation. I depend upon God now and I'll depend upon God after. And he did. And you know what? What was Y2K? Nothing. I remember we had our services that night. I don't remember why, if we just had them because it was New Year's Eve or whatever. And as I was teaching, 
I guaranteed people nothing was going to happen because it was already New Year's, Eve, or New Year's Day somewhere else in the world at that time and nothing happened there. And again, it all turned out to be... We so like the conspiracies. Trust in God and you'll do well. Thirdly, righteous rule, verses 10 through 17. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. Bloodthirsty, you've lived this out. The bloodthirsty, those who are just contrary to God... They hate the blameless. You're the blameless because you've been washed clean in Christ. But the upright seek his well-being. Whose well-being? The bloodthirsty's well-being. You seek his well-being uh, prayerfully that you desire to share the gospel. Verse 11, a fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. I want to hear about everything. Don't need to hear all of the information all of the time. And a fool, fool just lets it all out. A wise man holds it back. A wise man is discerning about the things that he says. Verse 12, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all of his servants become wicked. Verse 13, the poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. We're going to see the fall of all of them. Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight to your soul. Verse 18, very popular, I even have it highlighted here. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. Where there is no revelation... The idea is where there's no prophecies from God. Where there's not the word of God, the people cast off restraint. Good cross-reference for that would be Exodus chapter 32. Moses, Moses who's representing God and representing God's word, what does he do? He goes up on the mountain. Remember what, he ha- what happened when he went up on the mountain? Aaron wasn't able to exercise restraint. Moses was the man who was the prophet. Aaron was the priest. Aaron didn't exercise restraint. What were the people doing? They were playing. They were getting involved in pagan rituals, where there is no revelation, or maybe you've heard it before, I think it's the King James, where there is no vision, the people perish. Either way, it, it works. But happy is he who keeps the law, who keeps the word of God. A servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond. And the idea is, if you're a leader, you've got to put effort into it. Just given commands, and if you're a parent, you yell into the room, clean up that room! And then you don't hear, are you cleaning up that room? And you can sit there and yell all day long, and that room's not going to get clean until you get up, walk down the hall, and make sure that they clean up the room. All the moms are nodding their heads. Verse 20. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope than a fool for him. Somebody who can't restrain his tongue. Somebody who, whatever he's thinking in his mind, just falls right out through his mouth. You know what I think? And the idea, you know, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't really want to know what you think, but I have a feeling I'm going to hear what you think. There's more, fo- there's more hope for a fool than that person. That person is worse than a fool. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. The idea here is he's not putting people in their proper place, in their proper order. He's going to have him as a son in the end. Either the servant is going to become lazy and and never going to actually do any serving, or the servant is going to usurp the son and take the position of the son. Verse 22, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. You ever 
wonder how come people who are always mad and always angry are in the midst of strife all the time? Well, it's just going to come because of their personality. I mean, there's certain people that you just look at and they look mean. And there's just always going to foster that. You just want to ignore them. You want to just kind of go the other way. What are you mourning me for? And then, you know, there's just that strife that comes. And it's just that kind of a person that's just always in a fight of some sort. Verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Sooner or later, the prideful are going to fall. You just see it time and time again. Those who are lifted up become full of themselves. Sooner or later, the Lord's going to take them down. It happens throughout society. It even happens within the body of Christ. Verse 24, whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. It's kind of, again, you know, look at it from the perspective of a parent. When you're questioning your child against something, he just doesn't give you all the information. He just gives you enough information to give you an answer without lying, but in actuality, it is a lie because they're just not, well, he's leading you in a bad direction. Whoever is a partner with a thief, whoever has that company, they've got to cover themselves. I need to be wise in who I, who I fellowship with. Verse 25, the fear of a man brings a snare. If you're always going to want to be pleasing people, you're never going to find rest. It's going to become a snare to you. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about what other people say. Be directed by the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 26, many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from God. Again, don't seek favor from man, seek favor from the Lord. In verse 27, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. This is kind of a catch-all here. And he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. There's always going to be that butting of the heads to good and evil, godliness and the flesh. And so, Hezekiah, Hezekiah has got his manual put together. His manual put together for those who are to rightly represent the king. And we're able to gleam off that. That as I look at these things, as I see my place, I see my family, my situation in these things, that I'll be a better represent, representative to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that as people see my manner of living, they'll see Christ in me. Father, once again, we just thank you. We thank you, Father, for this word that is so practical, especially the book of Proverbs, Lord, and it's so easy to get lost in it and to talk about it and to carry on about it and only go through a couple verses of the first section of this teaching. But Lord, isn't that what we're supposed to do? It's just to get lost in your word. And what a beautiful thing that it is. I pray, Father, that it would be something that we would continuously hold dear to our hearts. And Father, it would continuously to bless our souls. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, that you would bless us because we have come here. Again, I lift up the Christians, Lord, on the other side of the world who are enduring such persecution. I pray, Father, for blessings upon them that you would watch over, keep them, and protect them. I pray for our president, Lord, that you would, Father, just give him wisdom, show him your will, and I pray that he would follow your way. And as for us, Lord, may we rightly represent you as we go out into society tomorrow, just giving you all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?